0: I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Silent Green is people! No. I am the father. Oh. What's in the box? You maniacs, You blew it up!
1: Damn you, Hi, I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm back with another Slate spoiler special podcast. And this week we're gonna be talking about Nope, the new sci-fi horror epic film from director writer Jordan Peele. Joining me to talk about Nope today is Nadira Goff, an editorial assistant at Slate. Also uh, in particular, the production assistant for our show, The Slate Culture Gabfest. Fest. So Nadira, we talk about culture almost every week, but very rarely on this side of the microphone.
0: Yeah, I'm so excited to be here with you talking about this movie today.
1: This movie gives us a lot to talk about and dig into. Before we get started spoiling, though, a thing that I like to do, since this is not a review podcast, is get out of the way up top. Just your general response. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Will you send your friends to see Nope? Uh,
0: yeah, definitely. Two thumbs up. I will send all of my friends to see Nope. I you know, don't think it's quite to the level as Get Out was, which is my favorite Peel film so far, but I it definitely enjoyed this one.
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like I don't even need to send my friends because all my friends are going to flock to see Nope anyway. I feel like it's sort of right. one of the movie events of the summer, uh, but I certainly would send them to see it because it offers so much to talk about. I will say, though, that I find myself both confused and slightly disappointed by this movie, maybe because my expectations were high. Uh, I want to hear a little bit before we get into it of what you think of. of Peel's big screen directing career so far in general. I mean, I think Get Out, we can all agree, was an incredibly splashy debut and kind of one of the most grabby directorial debuts in recent years. Then Us was received somewhat with a mixed reception, I think, you know, people thought that it was something of a come down or that it was too ambitious, but didn't quite accomplish what it set out to do. I personally am a big fan of us, but I also do see the objections to us that it's so thematically ambitious that it never quite coheres into a movie. And I'm interested in asking you about that now, because I also feel that way on an even grander scale about this movie. I feel like it sets out to do even more than us did and maybe accomplishes even less.
0: Yeah. I I think I feel exactly the same way. I, 100% was obsessed with Get Out. I think I saw it in the theaters maybe three times. Uh, And then I also really enjoyed Us, but had the same sort of hesitations or reservations that you did about everything it was trying to achieve. And I think with this film, it seems to be, Nope just seems to be a much more straightforward film, except for the fact that it's not at all in the sense that there are, at least one other, you know, major storyline going on throughout the movie that I can't seem to fully understand how it relates to the sort of bigger story that we're being told. Um, And so I feel like I don't think his films are always that straightforward, but this film really made me wonder if I was missing something that the film was explicitly trying to tell me or hit me over the head with.
1: So since something has come up a few times already about movies that have uh, that take on a lot and don't necessarily uh, solve all of the mysteries that they raise, which can be a great thing in a movie. Don't get me wrong. I love some of the ambiguities in this movie and in us as well. Um, But since we're talking ambiguities, let's start off with the very beginning of this movie, which takes place in a timeframe where we don't spend that much time. I mean, I think you could say roughly that this movie has two tracks, one that's a flashback to the late nineties uh, and the entertainment industry. And one that is seems to be in the present day on a horse ranch in Southern California. So we'll spend most of our time on that horse ranch, but can you kick us off first of all, Um, back in the nineties on the set of a mysterious sitcom <laughs> starring a chimpanzee.
0: Right. So when the film first starts uh, before you see anything kind of as a cold open, really. You hear what sounds like audio from an old uh, late 90s family sitcom, uh, you know, with the laughing track and everything. But instead of actually seeing uh, a sitcom taking place, what you see is you see a chimpanzee on a television set in what appears to be, you know, clothing, so clearly a a costume, so clearly a part of the show but covered in blood and a lifeless body in front of it. And it's clear, or we're made to assume at least, that the chimpanzee has attacked this body in front of it. But that's kind of all you see. And then you get the title card for the film, I believe, or it at least switches to the more recent part. And that small segment was so weird and so unexpected that some people in the theater actually laughed because they didn't really know what to make of it. Um, but it does surprisingly come back in the future, which I wasn't even expecting myself.
1: Right, so all we know at the beginning is that at some point in the 90s, an ape went crazy on a sitcom and killed one of the other stars of the show, or at least one, it's kind of like a, a some gory spectacle has just taken place on that set. And then as you say, we cut to the present day and we locate ourselves in another weird setting with an unexplained phenomenon, which is the death of this rancher uh, Otis Haywood senior uh, from these objects that appear to be raining down from the sky so we see these these two men on horseback you know they're wrangling their animals sort of out in the middle of nowhere and in what it will later be explained as um, something falling out of an airplane, the older yeah. of these two ranchers, the father is hit by these objects, one of which turns out to be a coin that in another really arresting and gory image goes straight through his eye into his brain. So this is the um, the act of of grieving and the death that kicks off the narrative in the present day.
0: Yeah, this movie seems to play in a little bit more body horror than I was expecting, certainly from a Jordan Peele film. And this is 100% the first instance where you see it. There's a really gory scene of blood squirting out of the father's nose. um, who's played by Keith David in a very wonderful, very short uh, moment for this film. So I wasn't expecting that either. And to come off of the gory monkey on set, I, it was just a very interesting start to this film.
1: Right. So the, the very structure of the movie implies somehow that these two events are connected, yet it doesn't become clear until quite a while later how or if they are. I'm not sure I ever understood how or if they were, but there <laughs> is gonna, there is going to be a, a subplot that relates to um to the monkey killing later on. In the meantime, we learn more about this rancher family. So the son who was there when his father is is hit by this flying coin from the sky, played by Daniel Kaluuya, is is Otis Haywood Jr., who goes by the name O.J. I have to say that this is something I found somewhat confusing. Like, obviously, naming a Black protagonist in a movie O.J. is a very strong and bold move on a screenwriter's part. And outside of one sort of odd joke near the beginning where some, some other characters are sort of nonplussed by this name. I'm not really sure what point it serves that this character is named O.J. But name aside, after O.J. the son has begun to process the death of his father from this mysterious freak accident, or so he thinks... We see him on the set of a commercial, right? Isn't it a commercial that's shooting in that moment rather than a feature film? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, With one of the horses from the ranch marked up with, you know, CGI style sort of green screen tape. And he's getting ready to pose this horse to act in a commercial. And that's when we learn the purpose of this horse ranch. It's a, it's an animal Wranglers ranch. So this is part of a sort of shadow industry of Hollywood. The Haywood family is this long time, as we learn, going back many generations, family of animal wranglers for um, Hollywood productions. So that's when our major characters get introduced. O.J. is handling the animal on set. His sister, who appears late to this filming scene, is a, is a much bigger personality than him, right? Um, her name yeah. is Emerald M for short, played by Kiki Palmer really wonderfully. And uh, and she then launches into this speech about the Haywood family. I wonder if you could resume that speech for us. What, what does she have to say to the uh, the folks on set?
0: I can try as best as I can. There was a lot of history packed into what seemed like two sentences. But basically, Emerald draws this sort of correlation or connection between the very first motion picture, which was a 2-second clip of a black man on a horse, and she explains that the black man on the horse, even though most people pay attention to whoever it was that put those frames together to make the motion picture, the black man on the horse is actually her great-great-great grandfather and Ever since then, her family, the Haywood family, has been involved in Hollywood on their ranch by training horses. And so they are the only black horse trainers in Hollywood. Um, And I think she has this really catchy catchphrase, as it were. That's something about like ever since Hollywood started, we've been able to say we have skin in the game or something like that. So she comes in with this really big intro, uh, this great explanation of the sort of family history. But you can also tell that she's the show person, you know, she's the showman of the family business.
1: Right. And with her story, too, about this um, early film, right, the famous photographs by Edward Meebridge of the running horse, we also get a visual motif that's going to come in much, much later in the movie yes. of uh, a bunch of still images, right, those famous still images strung together of a mm-hmm. running horse. And uh, in, I think a, a, a kind of a beautiful way, Jordan Peele, I think, is is Incorporating all of film history, right? I mean, this is in some yeah. ways a love letter, but a very ambivalent love letter to um the history of the entertainment industry and also the place of, you know, black people within that industry, right? Because there may have been a black man on that original horse filmed by Edward Meebridge back in the 1870s, I believe it was, but It was a long time after that, before we had black cowboys on horses again, and that's exactly what this movie gives us a lot of as we get toward the action climax is, you know, a black man, this time Daniel Kaluuya on a horse.
0: Right, absolutely.
1: All right, so now that we've set up our our basic couple plot lines and characters, I'm gonna take a break before we dig into the quite substantial middle portion of the movie for a word from the sponsor. Okay, round two, name something that's not boring. All right, so turning back to the main story of NOPE, after OJ Sr. exits the plot: We learn that the ranch is in some financial trouble. This obviously has to do, although the movie never comes out and spells it out. But I feel like this has to do with the current state of the entertainment industry, right? I mean that that the coming of CGI, and in fact, it's worth noting that Gordy the chimp, who we saw up top in the movie, is a completely CGI creation. Horses uh, yeah. are not as necessary as they were before. The ranch seems to have fallen on hard times, and as a result, the Daniel Kaluuya character, OJ Junior, uh, goes to try to buy some horses back from this character played by Stephen Ewan, who is for the first time now going to start sewing the ape plot back in together with the horse plot. So let's talk about this crazy set, which Jordan Peele must have had a great time uh, building and supervising in the production design of where Stephen Ewan is out in the desert. He runs this kind of concession, right? It's called Jupiter's Claim. And it's a kind of... (laughs) Try to describe, please, for me, this nutty theme park.
0: Yeah, it's like a very slapdash western themed amusement park that seems like it would be something you stop on on your way you know down route 66 or something Um, it doesn't seem like an ideal destination but it's ideal enough for this film in the sense that it's also entirely creepy Um, it's always half empty half not empty everything seems to be working but old it's it's very weird very unsettling
1: Right. And it seems like the who Stephen Ewan is takes us a while to figure out. In fact, it's Kiki Palmer's character who figures it out during this visit the siblings pay to him. But he is both like faux cowboy who runs this concession. And also, it seems he was able to open it in the first place because of his childhood celebrity. So he is the kid or one of the kids who was on the set of that 90s sitcom, The Day That Gordy the Ape. Went bananas and, and started killing people, right? Quick flashback: we we see that he's there, spattered in blood, as a kid observing in horror the the ape massacre, and now uh, back in the present day, he's just famous enough. I feel like he's almost like a Scott Bayo figure or something, right? <laughs> he's somebody who had some childhood stardom and is just famous enough to kind of milk it as an adult. You know, where he he runs this this Western style little miniature theme park, so. This theme park, and this is all set up very quickly in that early sequence, has bought some horses in the past from the ranchers. And the reason the Haywood siblings have gone to this crazy theme park in the middle of nowhere is to sell one of their horses because the business is in trouble. And in the process of talking to Stephen, Ewan, you and they are allowed into this secret room, <laughs> this closed off room where the story of Gordy, the killer ape has been preserved. And a lot of artifacts from that moment have been preserved. There's one artifact I want to note because it comes up later in the movie and I do not understand it. And this yeah. is one of the points that actually annoyed me in the movie because it is important to understand this. And it's a sneaker with a spot of blood on it, right? That, that one of the characters, actors who was killed by the ape was wearing at the time. And um, as we'll see later on, when there's a flashback to that scene, there seems to be something kind of supernatural or enchanted yeah. about the sneaker. Right? Yeah. It's standing upright in perfect position and also seems
0: to have a sort of halo type glow around it. And I did not understand why either, but we yeah, can get it's to a, that. It's when a gravity
1: defying <laughs> sneaker. So keep keep that in your notes for a future conversation. All right. So that's, what's going to weave these two stories together, not completely satisfyingly, but we now know that Stephen Ewan is set up also in a quasi-entertainment business, you know, close to the ranch where the the two siblings are operating. And here we are. We're a good, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes into talking about this movie, and we haven't gotten to the UFO yet. No, we haven't. (laughs) So how does UFO enter the proceedings in the first place?
0: So after this section, the film is then split up into other sections, or at least it has title cards before, you know, different parts of the film. The next section is called Ghost, or that's the title card that we see. The siblings go back to the ranch, both of them. And while they're home catching up, uh, we get one sort of throwback story where Kiki Palmer's character Emerald talks about a horse called Jean Jacket, which was supposed to be the first horse that her, or their dad was supposed to let her train. But instead, Daniel Kaluuya's character OJ got to train the horse. So we get that backstory really quickly, but then, OJ goes out to check on their remaining horse, Ghost, and Ghost runs away. There's weird wind that comes in the sky. Ghost starts screaming, a sound I never want to hear a horse ever make ever. (laughs) And then we get our first sighting of the UFO, which is a blur. It's quick. It's behind clouds, but it looks like I don't even know. How would you describe it, Dana, when we first see it?
1: I mean, it's what's great is that is the changes that it undergoes. But the first time we see it, and this becomes one of the countless, you know, old Hollywood references throughout this movie, it looks like a flying saucer, (laughs) you know? It looks like the, the way that movies thought of of aliens looking back in the days of, I don't know, invasion of the body snatchers type movies from the 1950s. And yeah, for the first, I don't know, probably hour and a half of the movie, that's the Form that we the see, the aspect <laughs> that it takes on, right? But as we'll yeah. learn, it sort of, it can unfold into into something completely different, and I think really imaginative. I love the way that it's imagined late in the movie, even though there's other stuff late in the movie that makes no sense yeah. at all. I really did love the um, the development of the the look of the of the UFO. So almost immediately, OJ gets this idea. That he's going to save the ranch by being the first to identify uh, an identified flying object, basically, right? He decides that he's going to use technology to tape it.
0: Right. But first, I actually want to point out one of my absolute favorite things about this film, which is after O.J. sees the UFO for the first time, he's talking to Emerald and there's not a moment's hesitation where Emerald doesn't believe him. The movie wastes no time with the, well, prove that you saw a UFO. (laughs) The lights flicker out. Emerald's like, that was weird. O.J.'s like, I saw a UFO. And she's like, that's crazy. We should try and make money off of it. Right. (laughs) Right. So she completely believes him.
1: Yeah, it's true. And that is a nice uh, character touch, actually, in a movie that in general, I think could have used a little bit more character development, a little more downtime between the siblings. That is a nice touch that establishes that they know each other and trust each other. They're very different. Types, right? I mean, the Daniel Kaluuya character is extremely, I mean, I would say melancholic, right? He's still really brought down and depressed by his dad's death. He's kind of obsessed with keeping the ranch going. She, on the other hand, has a million irons in the fire, is kind of entrepreneurial, is is much more upbeat. But the two of them do seem to have this, this deep connection that involves the ranch you know, the horses, their dad, and also once they discover it, you know, this this new entrepreneurial plan they have, that they're going to become the first people on earth to ever identify an alien invader.
0: Yeah. So in that pursuit, uh, both siblings go to a video store <laughs> to try and get all of the materials that they'll need to capture this UFO in the clearest picture that we can ever see it. Um, that's where we meet Angel, who works at the video store. He sells them the equipment. Angel also then. Helps them set set it up. So Angel goes back to the ranch with them, helps them set up the equipment, kind of lingers around. Definitely hints that he's interested in what they might be filming and that he's aware that they're trying to film UFOs or the presence of aliens.
1: Yes. Played by Brandon Perea. I really love this character. Uh, he's this kind of I mean, I feel like he's he's somebody who often shows up in this kind of sci fi movie. Right. Who's this slightly dumb yeah. IT guy who's helping them get it going. I mean, he offers to help them set up the camera. He almost immediately starts talking about UFOs, but in a much more kind of a, a conspiracy theory mindset. At first, I right. was afraid that he was somebody who was going to out them, you know, that, that they were and they were understandably nervous about the same thing, that he was going to be somebody who was going to scoop them on the UFO and try to get out the information before they did. But as it turns out, he's quite a useful Um, helpmate for them in in this process of trying to capture images of the UFO. So he comes over, sets up security cameras along with OJ Jr. and sort of starts to join them in this task of keeping a nightly watch for the alien.
0: Right. And I think right before we move on to the next section, after they meet Angel, I think that's when Emerald steals the decoy horse from Jupiter's claim, which also comes back later.
1: Oh, yeah, because that is is—it's important to start talking about another ongoing visual image, along with those stop motion images of a horse that are going to come up over and over again from film history. There's, and you'll know this if you've seen the trailer for Nope at all, there's this ongoing theme of the, I don't know what you'd call them, but the fluttering triangular flags, flags that you see at, at a used car lot or something like that. Right. Um, later to be joined by, and I don't have a word for these either. The waving tube guys that you also yeah, see. Yeah. Like the inflatable men that you would see outside of car dealerships. <laughs> right. So be- because those things become important in the alien subplot, it's worth noting that the horse that she steals, the decoy horse that she steals from, um, Stephen Ewan's theme park has one of those attached to it. It's got, you know, a big, a big trailing. Um, yeah. I also think one flags.
0: important motif, visual motif that they hint at, but isn't as important as the other two you just mentioned is Reflective surfaces. So the decoy horse has these reflective eyes um, that then come back up later in a really cool costume aspect. But there's also the repeated motif of whatever reflective surface they use to test light on sets. That's actually what spooked the original horse Lucky when we first meet OJ and Emerald when they're trying to shoot that commercial.
1: Right. Well, did you notice that comes up as well? The motif of looking something in the eye comes up in the old killer ape subplot because (laughs) of of the idea that the reason this ape was going on the rampage is because people were looking it in the eye. And, you know, it is, in fact, true. I think that animals tend to perceive eye to eye contact as being aggressive. And so that's something I think that if I had to say thematically what ties the two plots together and here we're getting into bigger ideas, but we might as well do it as we go along because there's a lot to come. But I think the idea of interfering with nature, right? Or somehow kind of hubristically challenging an alien or other kind of species in a way Just that a predator takes in away its selfhood. Yeah, is something that's that's dangerous and something that OJ as a horse wrangler and somebody who's good with animals knows not to do. And very early right. on in that scene on the on the commercial set that we talked about, he says, don't look the horse in the eye. You know, somebody gets kicked because they're standing in the wrong place. And, uh, and there's a sense that, he has a sense of, of boundaries around how to treat creatures that are alien. And that will serve him well when he starts duking it out with an UFO at the
0: end. I love the image of someone duking it out with a UFO.
1: But that's <laughs> actually exactly what happens. It's a Western, and I think it becomes more and more of a Western as, as the movie goes on.
0: Absolutely. So as the movie does go on, the next sort of section of the film is called Clover. And so as it stands... Emerald and O.J. are at the ranch. They've got the camera set up. They're waiting for the UFO to come again. The lights flicker. The power goes out, as it tends to do when the UFO approaches. And O.J. goes into what I believe are the stables. I don't know horse terminology, (laughs) Um, but he goes into a secluded, dark area. And then we get one of my absolute favorite scenes of the film, which scared the living daylights out of me. It's a wonderful decoy. So basically, as O.J. is in this room alone, you start to see these really, really creepy looking alien-ish figures. They start popping up around and tormenting him. There's jump scares galore. It's terrifying. And it turns out that they're just... Jupiter's kids (laughs) from Jupiter's Claim. Uh, They're just his kids who are basically retaliating for Emerald having stolen the decoy horse.
1: Yeah, and the way the aliens look actually becomes important later on because did you notice they look like apes right i mean they're sort of half alien their masks look like the classic image of an alien with a sort of skull-shaped face and big eyes but they have these furry ape-like bodies and are sort of moving in an ape-like way once again bringing together you know the story from the past and the story from the present yeah that's that's a good fake out scene i agree Uh, you know every good horror movie has to have at least one scene where something horrifying yet completely banal happens i noticed that that happened also in a scene in the electronics store when um when yeah. Angel has a, suddenly sees a dark figure looming behind him and it turns out it's his co-worker eating hot <laughs> Cheetos.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I loved that moment too, which is a surprise cameo by Barbie Ferreira, who's in Euphoria, which I found really entertaining.
1: Ah, I don't watch Euphoria, so I never would have gotten that one. Yeah. So after the appearance of the children dressed as aliens, there's something important that we learn about the UFO from this, this second big appearance of, of the UFO. The siblings discover that... The UFO has attempted to eat, and this is not quite clear yet in the movie, but we might as well spoil it since it's a spoiler special, that what we're talking about here is not just a a single spaceship with, you know, some sort of occupants in it, but it is the actual being, right? This saucer-like thing we've been seeing that later takes on a different form is actually one unitary creature that is hungry for stuff and is is sucking in things from the area all around the siblings' ranch. It seems like it only eats the organic material. This is also never said, but we just sort of figure it out. And it spits Mm -hmm. out the things that are inedible, right? Which then accounts for how O.J. Sr. died. It's because those things that were falling. We're not falling out of an airplane, but we're being essentially kind of belched out by this creature who couldn't digest them. Isn't that kind of how you you saw it? Yeah, in a very disturbing way. That's definitely how I saw it. (laughs) And so the siblings really learn that fact uh, the same night that, that they see the alien or the kids dressed up as aliens because the floating UFO decides that it wants to suck up the decoy horse, thinking, I guess, that it's a real horse, but spits the horse back out because precisely of those flags, the triangular fluttering flags, which it doesn't seem to like. They also know this, I guess, because afterwards the, the flags are stuck in the alien, right? It has a, yeah. a line of flags coming out of it. So um slowly they start to put together that the alien is a single being that it is looking to eat everything in sight and that it spits out the organic objects that it can't digest. Um, they end up using all of this in their ultimate setup to try to trap and photograph the alien.
0: Right. And in a very quick uh, plot point, they actually don't capture the money shot of the alien at this point, because there's a praying mantis that covers the camera. So they're still on the hunt for the perfect shot of the UFO alien.
1: Yeah, that was another good fake out. I love the the, the praying mantis covering the camera. I love Kiki Palmer's line about you better pray that I don't catch you. Right. <laughs> but I don't catch the praying mantis. Yeah, it was great. All right. I'm going to take another break here for another word from our sponsor, and we'll come back to talk about the two, not one, but two big action climaxes of NOPE. All right, Nadira, I hope the listener is still with us because this is a lot of plot that we've already plowed through, and I feel like we're probably not explaining it that clearly because I'm still not totally sure I understand it. In fact, in the midst of writing my review, which I'm still doing, I'm trying to puzzle out what some of this stuff means and how it all fits together, Mm -hmm. but... I think the next big thing that we need to talk about, and it is pretty spectacular, just, I mean, it could stand alone, I think, as just a good action sequence in itself, is uh, the encounter with the alien that happens at Jupiter's Claim, at that crazy theme park run by Stephen Ewan's ex-child star character. Um, It's the first time that we see those two parts of the story come together, the UFO plotline and the ex-child star running a um, a fun ranch plotline. Can you help me set up the, the insanity that takes place at Jupiter's Claim?
0: right so after the failed attempt to capture the shot of the alien oj decides that he wants to go back to jupiter's claim to buy back lucky the horse as he's doing that we see jupe who's played by Stephen Yeun, perform his new as he calls it family show but it turns out that that family show is just selling tickets to see the alien in person which he has dubbed the viewers um, so he's selling tickets to see the alien he's selling alien merch um And as he's trying to show these audience members, the alien, the alien shows up early and consumes them all.
1: Yeah, that, This scene is really horrifying because at the climax of it, as this UFO is hovering above this little, yeah, I don't know, theater, little stadium full of spectators sucking them in, we actually see what's inside the alien for the first time, right? I and mean, we essentially yeah. get a kind of point of view shot of what it would be like to be in the gullet. Of the alien being digested. And it's really, really horrifying.
0: Yeah, it it really plays on claustrophobia. There's like billowing tent sides, kind of, or cloth sides that come in and just seem like they'll surround you. It is very chilling, very, very chilling.
1: And that's the moment that we really know for the first time what I think the siblings are already suspecting, which is that this is not a craft, but an individual being up in the sky, you know, that's that's looking to eat people. But this is also the part of the movie, I have to say, where the first big plot hole comes along. And it's something that I asked multiple critics about on my way out of a press screening yesterday and nobody understood it. Maybe you did. How on earth is Stephen Ewan getting this alien, which, you know, as we've seen, the siblings can't have no control over and no understanding of, how is he getting it to show up at the same time every day for some kind of, you know, light and sound show at his theme park? I just don't understand what's, I don't understand what he expected to happen then or what the movie is positing has been happening on a regular basis between the UFO and the Jupiter's Claim theme park. Do you?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wasn't sure about the timeline of the entire thing generally. There's a moment earlier in the film where they discover that there's a cloud that hasn't moved. And then OJ remarks that he's probably been looking at the same cloud for six months, which means that the aliens might have been there, alien singular, might have been there for six months. I'm not sure how that ties into the Jupiter Claim show. I wasn't sure entirely how long the Jupiter Claim show had been running. It seemed like it might've been new-ish, but not entirely new if they'd already sort of figured out some of the things that they had sort of worked through in order to make the show work. So I was a little confused about the timeline as a whole.
1: I was confused about that timeline and also just about what the show would have consisted of. It almost seemed right. like the, the movie was positing that The reason he wants all these horses, that Jupiter wants all these horses, is because he's sacrificing a horse a day in the show. But it seems like that would be something the ranchers would know about (laughs) just it just seems like if there was literally a guy sacrificing horses to a big god in the sky as part of a theme park show that it would be bigger news (laughs) than it is in this movie it also
0: seems like if we're to go by the rules of the film which is if you look at it in the eye it will eat you that everyone would have been eaten on opening night when they first ran the show
1: yeah agree and that same that same plot hole that if you look it in the eye it will eat you comes up in the in the climax of the ranch that we'll get to in a minute because that seems to be an inconsistent rule there as well. So I think this is a moment to actually say, I mean, how is the movie working for you at this point? I think it was around the time of the Stephen Ewan show, as spectacular as that sequence is in itself as a piece of craft and filmmaking, and as scary as it is, that I started to have questions about how the movie was cohering and staying together that I didn't feel were ever completely answered.
0: Yeah, it's worth noting, and I think we'll probably talk about this quickly on the back end because it's just easier to do it that way, but it's worth noting that right before this entire scene at Jupiter's Claim where there's a massacre is when we get the actual visual of what happened on Gordy's home, the late 90s television show. So this is all happening right after we get the very gory scene of Gordy the monkey killing people. And I wasn't entirely sure what to make of that. And then it jumped sort of right into this. So I think I was just being taken on for the ride. You know, I I was sort of reserving all of my judgment for the end.
1: Oh yeah, me too. I was thinking, okay, now these things are going to come together. And maybe that's why I, I clock that moment in the movie as a moment that I started to be disappointed. It was only in retrospect Mm -hmm. because they didn't really come together. Right, right. I suppose that the reason that that flashback would be dropped in right there, the Gordy murder flashback, would be because it's about the Stephen Ewan character's psychology, right, that he's almost trying to master the trauma of his past by recreating the spectacle night after night, which is a fascinating idea. Uh, But we don't really know that character at all. We only see him in a few scenes in which he's basically the butt of the joke and this kind of ridiculous, vain, self-impressed faux cowboy. And so I'm not sure how revisiting a trauma from his past and then, you know, having him get sucked up into an alien, and never be seen again, how that resolves yeah, that story. It
0: seemed very weird. I was also talking to some other critic friends about this and we all just decided that it seemed like Stephen Young's character, even though he's played extremely well by Steven himself, it seems like the character just serves a purpose to attempt to tie the the lessons we're supposed to learn from the Gordy story to the lessons we're supposed to learn or the way we're supposed to apply them to the sort of present day story. But I wasn't sure about that connection. So I wasn't entirely sure about Steven's character or why Jupe was so underutilized or so underexplained. I agree. I was confused.
1: Yeah, it's not even clear whether he's a villain. You know, he's if he's a protagonist, he is a very flawed protagonist who's somewhat ridiculed. He's not exactly the villain. I guess that would be the big thing in the sky eating everyone. But just what exactly what place he holds in the narrative was somewhat confusing to me. And it was a moment that I could have done with a few more minutes of movie to spin out some time with that person in their story. All right. But we still have another even bigger (laughs) action climax to get to. And this is where you see in the movie's last 20 minutes or so, you really see that Peel is making his first blockbuster. Right. I mean, he really has a a huge budget this time and huge special effects and his imagination, which I think is his greatest gift as a filmmaker, you know, but more so than I think his storytelling craft at this point. He just has an absolutely wild and generous imagination. And I do love that about all of his movies. But that is on full display in this final uh, showdown among the folks at the ranch, the two siblings and uh, Angel, the electronic store employee who's become their their ally in trying to capture the image. And also, right. speaking of capturing the image, this filmmaker who gets brought into the story in the last half hour or so, his name is Antlers Holst. He appears to be a, a documentarian of a very dour kind of sort. I almost thought of Werner Herzog when they um they introduced his character and you right. see him watching some, some footage that he's editing together. He seems to be a documentarian who specializes in kind of grim spectacles about nature. And you see him watching Watching some footage that apparently he has filmed of, I don't think, I think a, a tiger being eaten by a snake or something really, really gnarly.
0: It's worth noting that if I'm not mistaken, that this is the director of the commercial that the whole film starts off with. And so earlier in the film, they call him, they say that they're trying to get an impossible shot. He declines, but once on the news, he sees that 40 people have died in a mysterious accident or have disappeared rather in a mysterious incident. Then he contacts O.J. and Emerald again, and he teams up with them to try and capture the shot of this alien. Again, not once in this movie does anyone disbelieve them for a second, which I find to just be absolutely incredible. So they set up this whole plan to attempt to draw out the alien, which they have aptly named Jean Jacket, and they try and make it happen.
1: Yeah. So here's where I get confused about their plan. I love some elements of their plan, especially how um, their plan really thematically starts tying together things that we've, that have been dropped into the movie much, much earlier. So those Edward Meabridge, you know, famous photographs, the sequential photographs of the horse come back in, in that, as we've learned Everything electronic tends to die down when the alien appears, right? Radios go off, you know, there's nice spooky special effects of various, um, you know, pop songs being kind of distorted, you know, as the alien appears, everybody's lights go out, etc. So Antlers-Holst has this idea, played by Michael Wincott, by the way, very well, very funny character. Antlers-Holst decides that he's going to use an old school crank, you know, hand cranked film camera to capture the image since you don't need any electricity for it. And then here's a moment when I really could have used more of a walkthrough of the plan, but using little Monopoly pieces, right, to represent <laughs> yeah. themselves and a map with pins, They proceed to map out this kind of um, geographic formation that they're going to assume in order to capture the image of the alien. And I got really confused about this plan. I guess we don't need to explain every element of it, but I'm not quite sure Except for how visually stunning the um, the results are, why they had to lay out the territory in this way. But what they do is they get a bunch of the waving tube guys previously mentioned. They use yeah. car lot markers uh, in various <laughs> rainbow colors because those remind the alien of this fluttering flag that it didn't like to to eat and couldn't digest. And they set them up as almost sort of uh, in a runway formation, which I assume what that is for is that when you're in that runway, you're more or less safe from the alien because it doesn't want to get near the tube guys. Is that the idea?
0: I think that's part of the idea. I think the other part of the idea is that they are powered by electricity. And so, you know, when the alien is coming or when he's leaving, if they're, fluttering like they're supposed to, or if they're just kind of lying down flat. And so it tells them both that the alien is approaching and where it's kind of positioned, but then also, I guess, would remind them of flags or bright colors, and so would kind of keep the alien away.
1: Right. So they're trying to both lure the alien in with bait, which will be them and the horses, right. and to to some degree kind of stave it off with these waving guys um so they set up this whole this whole area to do that the filmmaker is up on the hill with a camera along with the electronic store dude as his assistant and then i think this is maybe the part i really didn't get so um but but it's the part that invokes the kind of spaghetti western that makes this ending even if you don't know what's going on um really exhilarating to watch is that we have the cowboy we have daniel kaluuya on horseback who's getting ready to run through the runway of waving tube guys. The idea being that he's he's luring the alien, right? Yes, that he would lure the alien to a spot that would be apt for filming, I believe. But the siblings' plans are foiled by several things. The first of those things being that Somebody appears in a completely mirrored helmet, going back to the theme of mirrors and reflectivity that's that's been going throughout the movie, who at first, you know, you thought he might be an alien himself or maybe he's a cop or he's some kind of spy. But as it turns out, like so much in this movie, he is another hanger on to the entertainment industry. It turns out to be a TMZ reporter on an e-bike who has heard about the strange goings on um, near this town, near this theme park and has come to check out the situation himself.
0: Yeah, it sort of plays into the film's whole deal with its commentary in the entertainment industry. Specifically, what was really chilling about this TMZ reporter is that even as he was lying down on the ground with most of his bones broken, he was still begging them to get the shot on camera or to use their camera or why aren't they filming this? And so it seemed to be at that point maybe hitting us a little over the head with, uh, I guess, the entertainment industries need to devour everything for content or turn everything into content, especially for profitability. But that's a, a quick moment and then it swiftly moves on.
1: Right. And as he as he deserves, the TMZ guy is soon sucked up by the alien himself, right. although there is a moment when and this seems seems telling that the Daniel Kaluuya character, I think, risks his life in order to try to help the uh, the TMZ reporter. Right. Um, yeah. And at this point now, the plan is really messed up because instead of just being bait, who's who's out of the way, um, Daniel Kaluuya and his horse are just exposed to um, to the alien that's attempting to eat them. And here's where the alien, I believe this is around this time, is, is when the alien starts to change form. And I wanted to talk yes. just a little bit about how it looks when it changes form, because that was a really cool and surprising moment to have late in the movie. And again, I think spoke to Jordan Peele's directorial imagination.
0: Yeah. So the alien changes form from a flying saucer to, I don't even know how to describe it, a sort of animal built from billowing fabric. (laughs) It's flying through the air. It looks like it could actually be a pretty insect, except it's terrifying and
1: huge and is just billowing in the air, consuming everything underneath it. Right. It has this this floral or mushroom-like kind of quality. It's kind of organic around the edges. That part is really beautifully done. And then in the center, sort of where the, the mouth or the eye or the face of the alien would be, is this is this great creation that is kind of a screen, you know, which again, I mm. guess, goes back to how this movie wants to, to be a critique of watching, you know, of viewing. In fact, at one point, I think Angel says, let's call this creature the viewer, you know? Right. Um, he's sort of hypothetically naming it the viewer. Um, and at that moment, it, it kind of turns into this series of screens that keep kind of renewing themselves. And it seems like what these screens are doing, and they're surrounded by actually sort of little other fluttering bits that look like flags. And it seems as if the screen is almost inviting you to look at it, which of course is exactly what you shouldn't do, because then it will suck you up and eat you. And there's this kind of contest between the um, the person down on the ground and, you know, these series of screens that are opening and opening um, up in the sky. It's really sensational looking. Once again, I'm not entirely sure what it yeah. means. Yeah, um, me but, neither. But it's, a, but it's a beautiful climax of just visually. And then there's a bunch of stuff happening on the ground that I, again, just found completely confusing. But there's a kind of a standoff, right? I would say that the kind of emotional and maybe action climax of the movie too is this standoff that occurs after the alien starts to reveal its true form? Because Emerald, Kiki Palmer, has decided to um to disobey the plan. She was supposed to be, you know, essentially operating walkie-talkies and 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 staying out of the fray. But because her brother is in danger, she goes down there, grabs the TMZ guy's bike. Um, which she can't get to start at first. And there's this very Western standoff moment. It's like something from a Sergio Leone movie. I think even the music on the soundtrack evokes that kind of, you know, um, that that kind of old spaghetti Western music. And the two siblings are some distance apart on the road, you know, lined by the waving tube guys. The um, in between them is this huge hovering, insane alien, like revealing the screens, etc. And I didn't quite understand what that standoff was. Was that both of the siblings wait, hoping to sacrifice themselves for the other sibling. And why did the standoff end at the moment it did? Do you know the moment I'm talking about it? Were you equally confused?
0: Yeah, I I, I think so. Um, I mean, it's worth noting very quickly that at this point, Angel is up on some hill entangled in barbed wire and the director, Antlers, um, in pursuit of the perfect shot, they actually did successfully get some film earlier. But in pursuit of the Of the perfect shot, he thinks the light would be better elsewhere. And so he tries to get more footage, but then just gets sucked up by the alien and taking the footage with them pure right. hubris.
1: And that's a perfect right. ending for his character, right? Because he's he's, Absolutely. So, he's so egotistically obsessed with being the person who films the alien that he winds up sacrificing himself to the alien and sacrificing all the footage that he shot as well. Exactly. So this
0: brings the alien back in full form and it's kind of upset now. And so, as you say, uh, Emerald and O.J. attempt to get away from it, but they do have this sort of standoff moment. And I just assumed that it was O.J., you know, standing firm in his decision to sacrifice himself for his sister, but Emerald sort of still in the moment trying to make peace with that. That's kind of how I read it, as her saying a sort of goodbye in a look, but I wasn't entirely sure either. It's definitely up to interpretation. Right. And
1: that moment is emotionally really powerful. But logically, I'm not sure it makes complete sense because both of them could have escaped more easily at that moment and nobody would have had to sacrifice themselves if they had not spent so long staring at each other in the standoff. Secondly, it seems like the rule that you can't look at the alien is kind of broken in this scene because Daniel is looking straight at the alien. He's backing up on his horse and that's beautifully filmed. Actually, I love those close ups of the hooves as the horse is moving backward, right? Because he's this expert horseman. But he is not sucked up, as far as I can tell, unless the very last shot of the movie, and we'll get there in a second, is Emerald's fantasy. But but he makes it, right? He, he, He makes it through. I mean, I
0: choose to believe that that last shot was reality and that he makes it because I'm soft and I like when things end happily. But it's definitely up for interpretation. But I think the way we're supposed to read that small note is that. He looks up at the alien to definitely bait it towards him so Emerald can get away. But then all of the tricks that we saw him use earlier in their previous successful attempts, he used to get away again. You know, the flags, the his hood, which has the reflective horse eyes on it and all of that stuff. But it's it's not shown. And so I'm not entirely sure.
1: Yeah, we never quite see his ending or not ending the moment he gets away because the action shifts to Emerald, who now has gotten the e-bike of the TMZ guy working and she tears off to the jupiter's claim theme park right which is now right. even more creepy because it's been the site of this massacre and it's completely abandoned and there's a there's an announcement running on a loop saying that the park is closing very right. creepy creepy stuff i mean it, it actually reminded me of some of the theme park stuff in us it seems like jordan peel loves himself a creepy theme park and then the photographic plot finds its climax in a way that's very satisfying i think which is that this thing at the jupiter's claim theme park that we saw earlier sort of hand cranked machine for capturing tourist photographs where you can look into a well and then inside the wishing well is a machine that takes your picture she manages to position herself there and wait for the alien to fly right overhead where she can photograph it and then the way she dispatches the alien uh, which is another critic pointed out is sort of a quote from jaws in a crazy way <laughs> is is very satisfying do you want to describe how she finally does the alien in
0: right so when she's at Jupiter's claim there's a big like cartoon inflatable of Jupiter himself that has a whole bunch of flags attached to it. So she releases that big inflatable Jupiter with the flags attached to it. The, the alien sees it. It tries to eat it. But of course, the inflatable man pops in the air and thus explodes the alien. But it drifts over the well camera so precisely that she can get that last photo.
1: Right. And that last photo comes out on a plate that looks almost like a tin type or something, an old fashioned yeah. photograph, bringing back in the very first images of the movie of that, you know, that running horse uh, from the, the 19th century. So thematically and visually, it all comes together really beautifully. (laughs) Plot-wise, I'm not sure that it ever completely coheres, but there's still a real satisfaction, of course, to the moment when she explodes the alien. And then, as we said, there's this, from a Western again, image of a man on horseback that appears, right? As the cops are arriving and the paparazzi are arriving to cover this, you know, whatever crazy alien event has just happened, she also sees perfectly framed in the gate of the Jupiter's Claim Park, her brother on horseback. And again, I was talking with people coming out after the screening about whether this image, which you see in a kind of a misty, hazy light, is something that she really sees or just her memory and imagination of her brother's heroism. And I, like you, want to believe that he made it, although it ends up leaving a lot of holes in rules that the movie itself has established.
0: Right. I was surprised it even showed us that last scene. I thought the last shot was going to just be Kiki Palmer smiling to the camera and us not necessarily knowing what she's looking at. But I choose to believe that he definitely survived.
1: They they were so ingenious. Their plot was, was so well thought out, even if not entirely sensical, that of course I want him to make it. But I feel like this is a movie that I walked out in a way, kind of fist pumping and then in a way, just head scratching. Like fist pumping with one hand and head scratching with the other, which is not the most satisfying posture to end a movie in.
0: Yeah. Unfortunately, it seems like we're running out of time to even get into the whole Gordy alternate plot or additional plot. But I definitely left the theater with my head scratching, but also fist pumping. I think I might have come out enjoying it a little bit more than you did If at all, just because I think it was visually stunning, the sound design was incredibly effective. I was creeped out so many times uh, successfully. But I agree. I mean, I think the plot definitely had some holes and definitely left me a little confused. But I do think that for the most part, it seemed to be the sort of most straightforward Thing that Jordan Peele has done in terms of there's a monster, people make a plan, they try and kill the monster or whatever it is. Whereas before it's his films are a lot more convoluted, but I definitely came away enjoying it. I was confused and I'll probably be talking about it a lot, but I think that I overall enjoyed it more than I was confused.
1: I mean, it seems like the kind of movie that would definitely benefit from a second viewing. I'm not sure that would close up all these holes, but it might right. help see how the, the two stories tie together. I also think it's 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 really born for the internet and generating fan theories. And I think there's gonna yeah. be a lot of conversation about this movie, even though it may not be his most popular or successful movie. It's not as nowhere near as kind of compact and audience pleasing as Get Out was. And uh I actually think it's his his least um uh I don't know understandable movie. And I know people thought that us had a very hef- hefty plot structure that it wasn't always well um, incorporated in terms of making sense. I think this movie goes even further down that road. And I at once really respect him for making such an unusual and original and strange movie that's so thoroughly itself, but also just, just wish there had been a little bit more scaffolding for us to hold on to. And it's rare that I say this as a film person rather than a TV <laughs> person, but I almost feel like this felt more like a 10 episode episode, season of television compacted into slightly over two hours.
0: Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I think it's a lot easier to stomach or understand or digest if you sort of treat parts of the film as separate. But the moment that I remember that they're actually part of the same film and try to make sense of that, it sort of all (laughs) unravels. So I 100 percent agree. But I do think that I really appreciated the commentary on the entertainment industry as you know, overt as it could have been at times during the film. I also was a little bit confused about what the film was trying to say about human relationship to predators and animals and animal cruelty and um, just how predators react and act. I wasn't sure what exactly it was trying to say about that, but I'll probably just keep thinking about it and see if I can come up with something. But overall, I still really enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I I appreciated the big ideas, and I definitely definitely want to see it again, and would send people to see it, especially if they're just Jordan Peele fans and curious to see what he's up to next. It doesn't have to dot every i and cross every t to be right. worth watching and worth talking about. All right, well, Nadira, thanks for helping me puzzle this through. I actually may incorporate some of this into the review that I'm still writing because you're helping me understand this um, this big monster of a movie that requires a lot of grappling. So, um, thanks a lot for coming in. Of course, thanks for having me. Our producer today was Christy taiwo MacInjola. The vice president of Slate Audio is Leisha Montgomery. For Nadir Goff, I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks so much for joining us for this Slate Spoiler Special, and we'll talk to you again soon.